Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, Features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts. Or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. Yesterday and today, we got the government's official scorecard on inflation. And of course, allowing the government to report on its own inflation is probably like letting a kids uh, prepare their own report cards. Obviously, if your kids are able to grade themselves, it wouldn't be a surprise if they came home with straight A's. And I think we get the same type of result when we put the government in charge of scoring inflation, when, of course, the government creates inflation. They do so for their own benefit, but, of course, they try to disguise the amount of inflation that is being created. And, of course, they blame other people for that inflation. But we got the PPI yesterday, the CPI today. Producer prices actually, according to the government, were unchanged. Uh, in the month of July, I think the consensus was for another 0.3% increase. I'm sure we'll make this up uh, maybe in the next several months. But year over year, we still have a 3.3% increase in wholesale prices. And even if you strip out food and energy, the year over year increase is still 2.8%. So we are well north of the so-called 2% target, although the Fed is now saying that they're symmetrical around 2%. That's the real target. It's hard to say exactly what qualifies as symmetrical. But the PPI uh, is still hotter than the CPI, which we got today. But the PPI is certainly a leading indicator for the CPI because what producers charge consumers 
is obviously going to have some reference or bearing on what they themselves pay for the, the products that they buy and then resell to the consumer. So before the producer can pass on a higher price to the consumer, he must first pay that higher price himself. So in the hierarchy or the order of the way price increases would move through the economy, you would expect prices to move up from the producer level to the consumer level. And so the producer prices should be moving up before uh, the consumer prices. But if you look at producer prices, that's a pretty good indication of what's going to be happening to consumer prices. The numbers that we got today showed a 0.2% increase in the uh, July monthly price. That was right in line with estimates. The year-over-year increase, another 2.9. So this is the second month in a row where we are at 2.9 year-over-year increases in consumer prices, according to the government. We are almost at 3%. The only question is, how much longer will the CPI have a two-handle uh, before it has a three-handle? The PPI already has the three-handle on it, so it won't be long before the CPI has the three-handle. In fact, I think we're going to move from a three-handle to a four-handle much, much quicker than we moved from a two-handle to a three-handle. In fact, even on the core if you strip out food and energy, you're at 2.4% year over year. That is a slight increase from the 2.3% year over year number that we had in the prior month. So inflation is moving up and it is going to continue to move up. You know, one of the things, though, that's probably keeping a bit of a lid on the inflation has been the strength of the dollar that we've had recently. A lot of that, ironically, due uh, to the tariffs that we are threatening to impose or those that we have already imposed. And tariffs, of course, are going to make prices more expensive for Americans. But in the short run, because the markets somehow perceive that America is going to win the trade war and that even fighting the trade war is somehow positive for the dollar, the benefit that we're getting in the short run is a stronger dollar will help keep consumer prices from being higher than they otherwise would be and also will help keep a lid on interest rates, which have pulled back a bit based on the strength of the dollar and the so-called you know, flight to the safety of the dollar, given all the turmoil uh, in a lot of the emerging market currencies, in particular in the Turkish lira. And I'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. But for now, all of the concerns about other uh, countries and other currencies are benefiting not only the U.S. dollar, but U.S. treasuries. In fact, treasury bond prices rose today. Yields fell all the way back down to 2.85% is the yield on the 10-year. You know, there was, uh, uh, I think it was Michelle Caruso Cabrera earlier this morning on CNBC. She kept on talking about the situation in Turkey. And one of the problems that she was pointing to was the yield on the U.S. Treasury being 3%. And of course, it's not 3%, we're 285. But she said, you know, the yield on the Treasury represents such an attractive investment uh, globally that it's hard uh, for the emerging markets to get any capital. I mean, why would you loan money to somebody in Turkey when you can just buy a 10-year Treasury and get this great yield of 3%? I mean, the yields in Turkey are substantially higher uh, than 3%. In fact, I can think of a lot of better places to invest my money rather than to clip coupons to get 3% 
for the next 10 years. But if you think about just what a lousy deal a 3% Treasury is, actually 2.85%, if consumer prices are rising at 2.9% a year. And of course, that's just what the government claims. I mean, obviously, if the government is admitting that prices are rising 2.9%, they're obviously rising much more than that, right? Because the government's lowballing the estimate in the CPI. But let's just take it at face value. Let's assume, right, that the government is right and that consumer prices are rising by just 2.9% a year. Well, if the government is borrowing money and giving you 2.85% a year, what does that mean? That means in real terms, you are losing money because the interest that you're getting doesn't even equal the annual depreciation of the domestic purchasing power of the dollar. So you loan the government money and you don't get the money back for 10 years, but the little bit of money they give you every year does not even offset the amount of purchasing power you lose because you don't get that money back for 10 years, right? If I give the government money and they give it back to me 10 years from now, and in 10 years, it is prices have gone up 2.9% a year, the money I get back in 10 years is worth a lot less than the money I loan the government, right? That's the loss due to inflation. And the interest rate is supposed to even you out. It's supposed to compensate you for the loss, but it's not even doing that because the government is actually paying you less than the value of your money is losing. And that's if you believe the CPI at 2.9% and if the CPI stays at 2.9% because the CPI is not fixed, but your coupon is. See, when you buy a 10-year treasury from the U.S. government, unless you're buying a tip, and we're not talking about tips. In fact, when Michelle Caruso Cabrera was talking about what a great deal everybody was getting by buying treasuries, you are locking yourself in to that 2.85% yield for the next 10 years. So your yield is locked in. The inflation rate is not. And if you look at the trajectory, the trend of consumer prices, and you understand what's powering that trend, the rate is likely to continue to rise during the entirety of that 10 years. And so the real yields are going to get even lower as inflation moves higher and higher and higher, yet your bond coupon remains fixed. In fact, a lot of people forget U.S. treasuries are taxable. I mean, yes, if you happen to live in a state where there is, no, where there is a state income tax, the state income tax does not apply to U.S. treasuries. Just like the income that you get on municipal bonds is not going to be taxed by the federal government, right? It's because what the Constitution, it's not allowing one level of government to tax the other. So the federal government isn't taxing the states and the state government isn't taxing the federal government. So when you buy U.S. treasuries, the U.S. government can tax you, but not the states. And if you buy a state uh, bond, the states can tax you if they want, but not the U.S. government. But Anyone who's buying treasuries is going to pay U.S. income taxes to the extent that they earn enough money to be subject to the U.S. income tax. You're going to pay U.S. federal income tax, including the Obamacare tax, if that applies to you as well, on that income. So you pay the income tax on the actual coupon. doesn't matter what inflation is. You're just paying the tax. So if you're getting a 2.85% coupon pre-tax, by the time you pay your federal taxes, which if you're in the highest bracket, it's now 37%, right? They took it down a couple of points 
uh, in the last tax cut, but you got 3.8% to add on to the Obamacare. So if you add those two taxes and apply it and then take inflation out, the yield on buying a 10-year treasury at 2.85% with a 2.9% inflation rate is minus 1.2%. So the the real after-tax yield on U.S. treasuries is minus 1.2%. Why does Michelle Cabrera think that a negative yield, negative 1.2%, is such a great deal? And in fact, it's going to get worse because inflation is going to move up. So that negative yield is going to get more and more negative. Now, of course, you know, other people in other countries have different tax rates. Uh, so she's talking about global demand, but most people who earn interest, earn interest in countries that levy taxes. Uh, so the after-tax yield on treasuries is pretty much negative, you know, unless you're, you know, you're buying it in a, uh, in a tax-free account, in which case it's, it's, it's a wash. Or actually right now, it's slightly negative at 2.9% inflation and 2.85%. But, you know, it's pretty much a wash. So it's really like a zero yield. But most people are paying taxes uh, on, on their income. And so the yield is already negative. So what what is so enticing about that deal? And why is it? How is it possible that the U.S. government can borrow at a negative rate? I mean, in what kind of Alice in Wonderland world is this even happening? I mean, that just shows you how completely ridiculous it is that the U.S. government could sell bonds where the buyer knows he's going to lose money after inflation and taxes, yet he buys the bonds anyway, right? How much longer can this possibly go on? This is all a speculative media. People are not paying attention to fundamental value of what they're buying. They're just buying stuff anyway. You know, it doesn't matter. And right now, of course, you know, with all of the concerns that now we have spreading throughout the emerging markets, probably the the epicenter of that coming from Turkey. I mean, what is the problem with the Turkish lira? Other than the fact that you've got a president of Turkey, right, who is basically, you know, veering off uh, into, into some very dangerous territory with his uh, rhetoric and his stance on the central bank of Turkey and now the, the political battle of egos that he's having with President Trump over the the release of a American pastor who is, uh, uh, you know, imprisoned in, in in Turkey. I think he's still awaiting trial, but the you know the uh, the U.S. would like to see him released. And as a result of this, of course, the president is now turning up the heat on 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 Turkey with sanctions, which is simply compounding the problems that they have in Turkey. And even today, today was probably the biggest one-day drop. I think intraday, the Turkish lira might have been down about 20% intraday. I think it finished the day maybe down 14 or 15%. But even that is an enormous move in one day. And basically throwing fuel on the fire early in the morning when the lira was already down 12%, Trump announced that he would be doubling the tariffs that he already has on steel and aluminum that are coming out of Turkey. Now, of course, Turkey does export uh, those products to the United States. I mean, Turkey has a trade surplus with the United States, like just about everybody else. Uh, but of course, you know, 
Is this going to hurt Turkey a little bit? I mean, obviously, it hurts Americans more because now Turkish steel is that much more expensive. I mean, Turkey can sell their steel to Europe. I mean, they already do. So maybe they won't get as much money selling the steel to Europe as they would have got had they sold it to America. But if we put those kind of tariffs, it'll most likely mean that Turkish steel or aluminum is going to be bought by uh, consumers in other countries rather than by Americans. But all of this, of course, adding fuel to the speculative frenzy to short uh, the Turkish lira. And I think you have a lot of hot speculative money that has been leaning down on on that currency. And it is it is basically fueling an even bigger problem because the problem they have, they have high inflation. They have very high real yields. I mean, the yields in Turkey up until recently, even though inflation was high, you had, you know, I was 400, 500 basis points of positive yield. Uh, on bonds. And the Turkish economy has actually been quite strong over the years. And as a result of that, a lot of international money has been invested in Turkey. A lot of foreign direct investment has been going into the Turkish economy, uh, participating in the Turkish equity market. Uh, Lenders have been loaning money uh, to Turkey. Some of that debt, of course, uh, dollar denominated or euro denominated, which is the problem now, because if you're a company and you're generating your revenue in Turkish lira if you have dollar or euro debt that you did not hedge. Now, of course, a lot of these companies hedged, right? I mean, that's that's the smart thing to do if your revenue is in lira and your obligations are in a different currency, you would hedge that currency to the lira. So a lot of these companies are completely hedged and people overlook that fact that they're what they're losing on the one hand, they're, they're making it back. Uh, on the other, but the weakness in the in the lira, right, drives inflation higher because as the lira loses value, then it ca- you need more lira to buy stuff. And as inflation goes higher, there's more pressure on the central bank to raise interest rates to try to fight that inflation. But of course, as they're raising interest rates, that also feeds into inflation because interest rates are a cost, right? I mean, it, rates are going up, costs are going up. And you get into this spiral. But if you have all these these uh, these speculate currency speculators, the minute you raise rates, they smell fire and they they sell the currency again. Unless you're really really willing to jack rates way up, which is what could happen in Turkey. But Erdogan is reluctant and putting pressure on the central bank not to raise interest rates high enough to crush all the speculators who are shorting the Turkish lira, which is what should be done. But what also should be done in Turkey is they should make a concerted effort to dramatically reduce government spending in Turkey. Not that it was out of control to begin with, but to the extent that they can reduce government spending, that's always a positive for any government if you could be less of a burden on your taxpayer. So if they can make the government smaller, but they want to make sure they don't have deficits because then they have nothing to finance. And the debt, if you look at the debt to GDP in Turkey, it's considerably lower than it is in the United States. I mean, the United States is in far worse shape than Turkey. In fact, it's not even close. But the difference is the U.S. dollar is not the subject of a run right now. But it will be. I mean, if you think about what's happening in Turkey and the predicament that they're in, this is the same predicament that America is going to be in. We're just not there yet. But I think that there will ultimately be a positive resolution. I think the Turkish economy uh, is going to weather this storm, and I think the lira is going to recover. And I think that there's some bargains right now uh, in Turkey, and there's some really good quality Turkish assets uh, that could be bought on the cheap 
uh, thanks to the exchange rates. And of course, the markets are depressed as a result of the collapse in the currency. And when the dollar collapses, the same thing is going to happen. You know, there are a lot of people who think that, you know, stocks are an inflation hedge. They're not going to be. When the dollar crashes, U.S. stocks are going to crash even more. Now, yes, if we have hyperinflation, and they don't have hyperinflation in Turkey yet, and I don't think they will, but they have high inflation. But we're going to have very high inflation in the United States, and the U.S. stock market is going to go way down at the same time, just like the Turkish stock market is going down now. But our problems are much more fundamental. It's not just going to be speculators who are going to be attacking the dollar. It's going to be the whole world that is trying to unload the dollar. They actually own them. They're not just going to be shorting dollars they don't have. They're going to be unloading dollars they do have, and there's going to be nobody there to buy. You know, right now, sure, everybody's piling into the dollar because they're delusional. In fact, if you actually look at what's happening, and I talked about this before, and it shows you how crazy everything is, the narrative behind the problems, not just for Turkey, Turkey in particular, because, you know, it's the subject of all these speculative flows. But throughout all of the emerging economies in South America, Southeast Asia, particularly countries that borrow in U.S. dollars, right? There are a lot of companies and even governments and banks that have dollar debt. The idea is the U.S. government is going to be selling so much in the way of bonds and not just the U.S. government or the, the Federal Reserve. Although when the Federal Reserve shrinks its balance sheet, it just means that the Treasury has to sell additional bonds to repay the, the Federal Reserve. So if you look at the deficits that we have now, and then you add to that amount the extra debt that we're going to have to sell in order to repay the Fed, the U.S. government is going to be selling $2 trillion a year worth of bonds. Now, this is unprecedented because remember, when we had trillion-dollar deficits under Barack Obama, Ben Bernanke was buying it all. He was monetizing the whole thing. So even though the government was running trillion-dollar deficits, we didn't have to raise a trillion dollars from anybody because the Fed just created the money. But now, when Trump is going to be running trillion-dollar deficits, not only is the Fed not buying any of it, the Fed is actually in competition with the Treasury, unloading the bonds that it bought when Obama was president, right? All the bonds that Obama sold to the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve now wants its money back while Trump is president. And, and in fact, today we just got the budget deficit for July much bigger than they thought. You know, the tax receipts were less than they thought. Uh, the expenditures were more. So instead of a $73.5 billion budget deficit, we had a $76.9 billion deficit. That, I think if you look at July from last year, it was a 79% increase in the deficit. So the deficit in July 2018 is 79% bigger than the deficit of July 2017. Now imagine how much bigger it's going to be in 2019, especially if we're in a recession. If we're in a recession in July 2019, the deficit will probably be triple what this July's deficit was. But this fiscal year, we are on track to have the biggest budget deficit in six years. My prediction is next year, even if we're not in a recession next year, we will have the biggest budget deficit ever in history, bigger than any year of Obama during the Great Recession. And in this so-called booming economy, 
when everything is great, we're going to have a bigger deficit than we had in the worst economy since the Depression. And if the deficit could be that big when times are good, and that's normally when you have a surplus, right? When times are good, the Treasury is flush. That's when you're supposed to be paying down your deficits. That's classic Keynes, right? What Keynes said, right, John Maynard Keynes, his theory, which has never actually been practiced by the people who call themselves Keynesians, but Keynes did not advocate perpetual budget deficits. What Keynes advocated, and I disagree with this, but this is what he advocated, and it's better than what we got now. Keynes said that when the economy is in recession, when there's insufficient aggregate demand, right, the government should fill the void and create that demand by running deficits, either by increasing government spending or cutting taxes. And that that will revive the economy, but that when the economy is overheating, when there's too much demand, right? And of course, now we have these big surpluses because the economy's firing on all cylinders. People are paying a lot of taxes. We got full employment. All those workers who are employed are paying taxes. Not as many people getting unemployment, welfare, food stamps. So now the government has built up this big surplus. They're supposed to pay down the deficits that they accumulated during the recession. And then once they pay down the deficits and they get the balance sheet back you know, on track, when there's another recession, they can repeat the process. So in other words, the government is going to lean against the economy and kind of be a counter-cyclical break. So when things are bad, the government steps on the gas, and when they heat up, it steps on the break, right? And it keeps it all even. But in practice, we don't do that. What we've been doing in America is when the economy is weak, we run huge deficits. And then when it gets stronger, we run smaller deficits. But we always run deficits. So the national debt just keeps going up and up and up and up. Under Keynes, it's not supposed to go up at all. It's supposed to be flat throughout the cycle. The surpluses in the good years pay off the deficits in the bad years. So it balances out. Keynes never would have argued for perpetual debt. Right? He never would have supported that. It is an asinine theory, even being, even being labeled Keynesianism. It kind of just, it, it's an insult to Keynes. It, it, it makes Keynes actually worse uh, than, than he was. So, you know, not that I'm, you know, letting him off the hook. He's just not as bad as, as Samuelson and some of the others that have, uh, you know, gone after him and, and, and popularized uh, Keynesianism in, in the textbooks. But of course, it's not about insufficient demand. That whole theory is nonsense, right? You know, demand is unlimited. People want everything. You know, that's not why we have recessions. We have these recessions because we have malinvestments. We have to liquidate um, assets that have been malinvested so that we can reallocate them more efficiently someplace else. And the government shouldn't try to resist the recession. The recession is there for a reason. It's like you're trying to resist a cure that's going to make you better, right? But, you know, Keynes didn't get what the Austrian school already understood. That's why the Austrians knew that all this nonsense wasn't going to work in the 1930s. All the pump priming and all the Keynesian stimulus didn't get us out of the Great, out of the great Depression. What got us out of the Depression was ending the Second World War and finally shrinking government and freeing up resources to return uh, to private sector use. But I don't want to get, you know, get off that topic. I could, you know, spend an entire podcast just debunking Keynes and, and talking about the Austrian school. But I want to just get back 
uh, to why I brought this up. But because even though we're announcing these these bigger deficits, no one cared, right? We, we announced today bigger deficits than the markets expected, which means the Treasury has to sell more bonds, but those bonds went up in value, right? And what uh, is driving this is the idea that we're going to be selling this $2 trillion a year worth of debt, and we're going to be crowding out all of the other dollar borrowing, right? I mean, the, the crowding out idea you know, used to be taught, I guess, in U.S. colleges that if the U.S. government ran big deficits, it would crowd out investment, private investment, and it would make interest rates go up. But now the crowding out is happening on a global scale, at least the anticipation of the crowding out. And people are saying that we're going to crowd out the emerging market borrower like Turkey, right? That nobody is going to want to lend their money to Turks when they can buy U.S. treasuries and get this great yield of 3%, that when U.S. treasuries were yielding 1% or whatever they were at the lows, that Turkish investments were attractive and a lot of money was going into Turkey looking for yield. But now that the treasury has raised rates and is going to keep raising rates, well, all that money is going to want to leave Turkey to go back to U.S. treasuries and not just Turkey, but all sorts of other economies around the world. And that is what is pushing down emerging market currencies, which is also spilling over into the euro and other developed market currencies, which is why the dollar index is now above 96. I kind of thought that we were going to peak out around 95, yet here we are at 96 and change, which means we probably could see a bigger move in the dollar index. I would not be surprised to see the dollar index move back above 100. The question is, is it going to take out the high uh, of you know 104, 105 from the end of last year. I don't think so at this point. I think that we may get back above 100 and turn back down. If we do, we will put in a pretty significant head and shoulders top uh, where you have two shoulders of around 100 and you have that head at around 105. And that would still be a pretty reliable topping pattern because I still believe the dollar is topping out here even if this rally ends up being a bigger rally than I initially thought. Now, of course, if we continue up and we make a new high and we take out 105, then that's not the case. Then there is no head and shoulders top. I mean, it's possible we can put in a double top at, 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 at 105. But I think if we, if we get up there, we'll probably take it out. So maybe the dollar could have a bigger rally. But I do think there is a lot of limit. Uh, because at some point, the U.S. market is going to give. I mean, the Dow was down about 200 points today, but that's nothing. I mean, the Dow should be getting killed based on the problems that we're seeing now in the banks, not only European banks, but American banks. And, you know, the fact that you're having this kind of turmoil normally would be bad for the U.S. stock market, except right now everybody is oblivious. Everybody is so sanguine and they think it doesn't matter what's happening in the world We've got this booming economy and everything is great. And so we could be an island of prosperity and it doesn't matter, right? Because our markets are barely going down. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we think that we're going to win the trade war is because on a relative basis, our stock market has barely gone down. But just because it hasn't gone down yet doesn't mean it's not going to crash tomorrow. I mean, we could have a crash any day. Then, of course, all bets are off. But if you think about this uh, the theory again, that the U.S. is going to borrow $2 trillion and the rest of the world is going to fund it. And therefore, there's going to be no money left over for anything else. That just shows you how economically inviable 
this current monetary system is where the dollar is the reserve currency and the world has to finance American profligacy no matter how much we want to borrow. I mean, if we want to borrow $2 trillion, that means the world has to loan it to us. What if our budget deficit goes to $3 trillion? They're going to loan us that too? No matter how much we want to borrow, all of that savings all over the world is going to get sucked into the U.S. Treasury market to the exclusion of all else. So the rest of the world, starting with the emerging economies, Everything is going to implode because all the money that would normally be going there to finance legitimate investment is going to be loaned to the U.S. government so they can clip coupons for 10 years at 3%. I don't think so. I mean, is, the, is it so important to have the dollar as the reserve currency that the whole world has to suffer just so Americans can keep on spending, so we can keep on building our government bigger and bigger? What if instead of buying those $2 trillion worth of bonds, what if people don't want them, right? What if nobody wants to buy all those treasuries? What if the idea that a 3% yield on a U.S. treasury bond, what if it's not as great a deal as everybody seems to think it is? What if people actually look at the numbers and say, you know, I don't want to buy U.S. treasuries at 3%. I, want, I wouldn't buy them unless they were 7% or 10%. The problem is the U.S. government can't afford to pay 7%. You know, or 10%, right? They could they could barely afford three. So if the world decides that they don't want to buy all these treasuries, that everybody just assumes are going to be bought to the exclusion of all else. So the Turkish lira and all these other currencies are going down because everybody assumes that all the money is going to flow to the dollar. What if they're wrong? What if the world doesn't want our paper? What if even Americans don't want our bonds? And why should they? Again, why should an American citizen buy a U.S. Treasury where he's guaranteed to lose money? There's no reason to do it. There should be no demand anywhere for U.S. Treasuries. And when that happens, then the roles are reversed. And America is Turkey. Because then what do we do? If we don't have buyers for our bonds, then the Fed has to buy, which is what's going to happen. But when the Fed has to buy then they can't pretend that they're going to shrink their balance sheet because their balance sheet is going to explode. And if the balance sheet explodes and they have to print all this money as inflation is already rising, we're going to have that same problem they have in Turkey. We're going to have exploding inflation and the Fed is not going to be able to raise rates for political reasons. And Trump will be just as political in the United States as Erdogan is right now in Turkey. And we're going to be in a position where there is no resolution. I see light at the end of this Turkish tunnel. I don't think this is going to crush the Turkish economy like a collapsing dollar is going to crush the, the U.S. economy. Because, you know, they've got, I think they're running a very small trade deficit right now in Turkey. And they could easily turn it into a surplus. In fact, they might be in a surplus. Uh, with the currency dropping like this, they'll probably turn to surplus pretty quickly uh, from a small deficit that maybe is 1% of GDP. But... America, we depend on our overvalued dollar to import all the things that we don't produce, right? I said, we have a trade deficit with Turkey. It's not the other way around. Uh, so this, I think, is going to be fatal. When the U.S. Uh, currency crisis hits, there's no stopping it. It's only a question of when. When are investors, when of the, is the public going to wake up and, and recognize what's going on, that the real Turkey is the United States. Now, I wanted to finish up this podcast by kind of talking a little bit about uh, the hypocrisy that I talked about in the last podcast coming from the left. And that, that mainly had to do 
with the outrage that was um, not expressed by Facebook or YouTube banning Alex Jones, but the tremendous upheaval that you get when you have a single uh, small business owner, uh, sole proprietor, decides she doesn't want to serve uh, or decorate a, a cake for a gay wedding. Oh no, that's you can't do that. You have you have to you 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 can't discriminate. I mean, you have to provide service to everybody. Yet they're fine uh, with Apple not providing service to Alex Jones. See, I'm consistent. I, I, I'm okay with the with 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 the Baker, you know, discriminating, and I'm fine with Apple and um, you know Facebook or YouTube discriminating. They're private companies. It's individual liberty, and and I respect that. But of course, there is no consistency on the left. It's pure double standard. I don't want to go back into that, those aspects. If you didn't listen to my last podcast, it's still up there, right? So you can have a listen. But another example of hypocrisy on the same week, and I, I you know, I, I could have mentioned it on the last podcast, but I just, you know, it was long enough, so I didn't, I didn't get a chance. But it has to do with these new attacks on Donald Trump that he's a racist. And I don't think Trump's a racist at all. I mean, I, there are things that I criticize about, about Donald Trump, but I don't think he's a racist. And um, but the reason that you have these new cries that Trump is a racist is because he sent out a tweet in which he basically said that LeBron James uh, was dumb or he wasn't smart or I forget the exact words, but he insulted the intelligence uh, of LeBron James. And I think the other individual who maybe was in interviewing, I think he was also black, uh, but he basically said that they that they're low intelligent people. They're not smart. And as a result of that. Now you have all these people coming out saying, see, Trump is a racist because he said somebody who happened to be black was dumb. And so therefore, the president thinks black people are dumb and therefore he is a racist. Anybody who is saying that Donald Trump is a racist because he called a black person dumb, that person is the racist. See, what would be racist would be for Donald Trump not to have called LeBron James, dumb, because he's black. See, Donald Trump calls everybody dumb. I mean, everybody who disagrees with him, right? I mean, people who agree with him are, are smart, right? If you go back to Trump, the candidate, how did he get elected? By telling, saying everybody was dumb, an idiot, a moron, incompetent, right? All of our trade deals were dumb. All of our past presidents, everybody was dumb except him, right? And of course, when Donald Trump was running for office, he was calling lots of Republicans dumb because Republicans were were running against him, right? So probably most of the people that Trump was accusing of being dumb before he was president were white, because those were most of the people who were arguing with him were also white. They were other white Republicans who were trying to get the nomination, or a lot of people in the Republican Party, the Never Trumpers, uh, they did not want Trump to be the nominee because they thought that we would go down in flames. In fact, one of the reasons that the left was not nearly as critical of Trump during the primary is because they were hoping he would win. They thought that that was the best thing that could happen. They thought that was a sure thing for Hillary. So the Democrats didn't want to criticize Trump too much because they were hoping he'd win, right? They were going to save the criticism for the general election. They were hoping he was going to be the nominee because they thought he was the one that they could easily beat, right? That's, you know, be careful what you wish for because it just might happen. And so that's what happened there. So most of uh, Trump's insults early on were, you know, we're calling white people dumb. But 
Now that he is president, most of his criticism is coming from the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party. And there's a lot more blacks in the Democratic Party than there are in the Republican Party. Uh, And certainly among the leadership, I mean, there's a lot of black critics of the president. So if you have a lot of black people criticizing the president, well, then the president's going to be calling a lot of black people stupid and dumb and low IQ. I mean, that's just how he is. I mean, look, Robert De Niro, you know, he came up and said, F Trump. And how did Trump respond? He called him dumb. He said he had a low IQ. He's white. Donald Trump doesn't care if you're white or you're black. If he thinks you're dumb, he's going to say you're dumb. That's not a racist. That's being fair. What would be racist is if Donald Trump deliberately refused to call LeBron James dumb because he's black. That would be treating a dumb black person different from the way you treat a dumb white person. See, if you're consistent, if you treat everybody the same, you're not racist. What is racist is to think that black people deserve a pass from Donald Trump. That it's fine if he wants to call white people dumb because white people can take it. But no, 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 don't insult a black person. Don't call a black person dumb. Why? They can't take it? I mean, they're, you know, I mean, if a white person could get called dumb, I mean, I think that is a condescending attitude, almost like, oh, you know, you got to treat them like little children. I mean, maybe too, some people, to the extent that they're white, right? If you got a white liberal who is saying, oh, Trump is uh, uh, racist because he's calling a black person dumb, I bet that white person is racist and probably thinks, well, all black people are dumb. You just shouldn't, you just shouldn't say they're dumb because it's not nice. It's not nice to to rub it in their nose that they're dumb. That's the racist. See, Donald Trump recognizes that there's some smart black people and some dumb black people. The smart black people are the ones that agree with him. The dumb black people are the ones that disagree with him. That's not racist. That's just Trump. That's his strategy. That's his style. You know, a lot of people like it because he speaks his mind. If he thinks someone is dumb, he says they're dumb, right? If he thinks Maxine Waters is dumb, she's dumb. He doesn't, it's not because she's black. If she was white and said the same nonsense, look at all the, look how much he makes fun of Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi's not uh, black, so he makes fun of her all the time. He makes fun of a lot of people. He is not a racist. But the left, they want to vilify Donald Trump any way they can. Oh, so if Donald Trump calls somebody dumb who happens to be black, aha, he's a racist because he's calling a black person dumb. That's not racist, right? That is being consistent, but it is the left just trying to find a way to take anything that Donald Trump does and and vilify him. And the problem is, of course, Donald Trump is his own worst enemy because, and I've said this many times, by claiming credit for this economy, By claiming that he's already made America great again, we have a booming economy, we're going to win the trade war, he is ultimately inflicting far more wounds on himself than the Democrats. You know, I was on Fox Business the other day, yesterday. You can see the clip up on my YouTube channel. And once again, I'm on there with another Republican, uh, just like I was a few weeks ago when I was on with Charles Payne. And by the way, it's nice that some of the people at Fox Business are actually having me on, right? I, I can't get on any place else. So, you know, they're at least a little bit more fair and balanced than you might want to give them credit because for all the Trump promoting that they do, and they do a, their share of it, just like everybody else, they're at least letting Peter Schiff come on uh, to, 
you know, present the other side of the of the coin. But I'm not criticizing him the way the Democrats criticize him. I'm criticizing him for legitimate reasons. I'll defend him uh, when I don't think he's done anything wrong. But I'm on this debate. Again, it's all about the statistics, the booming economy. Everything is great. And nothing is great. I mean, look at the statistic. We got housing numbers, I think, that came out um, uh, yesterday or today that shows that the affordability index is the lowest it's been since 2008. So homes have gotten more expensive and mortgage rates have gone up. So now we have the lowest amount of affordability since right before the 2008 uh, housing collapse. I mean, <laughs> come on. I mean, I mean, how much uh, you know louder does the bell have to ring? I mean, how did it end in 2008? It wasn't good. Houses were expensive. And then what happened? And you know what? They're going to get even more expensive. We're going we're gonna to hit an all-time record high. Because mortgage rates are going up, but not only that, construction costs are going up to the extent that they they build a new home, but uh, local taxes are going up, insurance rates are going up, everything about the cost of home ownership is going to be going up. The one thing that's not going to be going up is real wages. In fact, I looked at a report today that real wage growth uh, just slumped the most in six years. I mean, look at this chart. I put it up on my website uh, from Zero Hedge. And there's only been a few months since 2012 where real wages have gone down. And this is the biggest drop since 2012. And then, of course, before that, you had a whole bunch of months where it was down in 2011. But this is the biggest drop since 2012. And people keep talking. Like when I was on this show on Fox, they were talking about how wages are going up. They're not going up. Wages are falling even if you buy the government's version of inflation, which I don't, but even if you assume that inflation is as low as the government claims it is, then real wages are still falling. So if wages are falling and the cost of buying a home keeps going up and home buying is already the most expensive, the least affordable it's been in 10 years, what does that tell you about where it's going? So the the numbers are all negative, but everybody is ignoring that. The trade war is going to backfire, but nobody cares. Everybody is focusing on who we think is going to lose and ignoring the fact that America will lose. And for a short time, that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that people are selling the currencies of the nations they think will lose and they're hanging out in the U.S. dollar as it's some kind of a safe haven. But again, it's going to be like that cartoon where Wile E. Coyote is chasing the roadrunner and of course, you know, he, the roadrunner goes really fast and then Wile E. Coyote runs off the side of a cliff and he just floats in midair because he doesn't realize that he's no longer on the cliff. But the minute he looks down and he realizes he's standing on nothing, that's when he collapses. And that's exactly what's going to happen to the people who have been buying dollars and buying U.S. treasuries. They're standing on nothing but hot air. The only thing is they haven't looked down yet. But when they do, look out below. Speaking about standing on nothing but air and not having looked down, I I forgot to mention uh, the cryptocurrencies and the Bitcoin uh, earlier today. In fact, as I was recording this podcast, I noticed that the price of Bitcoin once again fell below 6,000. We barely got below it. And in fact, as I'm recording now, we're back up at about 6,150. But still, that's almost a 400 point uh, drop on the day. The Bitcoin chart is looking horrible. 
And you know, Erdogan, uh, in his speech today, he urged Turks to sell their gold and buy lira. Now, of course, when you're having a potential currency crisis, the last thing that you want to do is give up your gold uh, to buy the currency that's going down. Now, I would agree if you have dollars, yeah, sure, turn your. it's a great time to use your dollars to buy lira. But the last thing that you'd want to do is give up your gold uh, because you know, gold's going up in dollars and lira. But if the government doesn't ultimately do the right thing, which I'm still betting that it will, I, do, I think that when push comes to shove, that's what's going to happen because the stakes are much too high and there is a way out of this. I mean, it's, it's not going to be easy, uh, but I think ultimately they're going to they're take it. But we'll see. I mean, I could be wrong. But you never want to get rid of your gold because either way, I mean, gold's going to go up in, in dollars and it's going to go up in lira. But it's interesting that, you know, Erdogan did not say convert your Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. He specifically mentions gold. Why? Because the Turks are holding gold. Gold is a monetary metal. It is a store of value. It is a safe haven. And those Turks who are storing gold, well, you know, they have preserved purchasing power. Take a look at a chart of gold in terms of the Turkish lira, right? The Turkish lira was down 20% today. That meant that at one point today, the price of gold was up 20% in Turkish lira. So if you're a Turkish citizen, you saw the price of gold go up 20%. Now, in dollars, the price of gold was basically unchanged today. I mean, I think the most I saw was up maybe four bucks. Maybe it got a little bit higher. Uh, so surprisingly, little interest in gold priced in dollars, but lots of interest, obviously, priced in Turkish lira or other currencies uh, that are falling against both gold and the dollar. But, you know, normally, if people weren't so bearish on gold, if all the hedge funds weren't shorting it, all this turmoil would be causing people to buy gold. Instead of just buying U.S. Treasuries, gold would be getting this flight to quality bid, especially since it's barely above 1200 It's around 1211 But I think it's coming, especially if the sell-off uh, spills into the U.S. stock market. I mean, as I said, the Dow being down a couple hundred points today is nothing. If it was down a thousand points today, maybe more. And if that happens maybe next week, as the, the heat gets turned up and people start to worry about the U.S. economy and the U.S. stock market. And of course, once they worry about that, then they question the Fed's commitment to continue to hike rates or to shrink its balance sheet. And then all of a sudden, all those shorts in gold are going to want to cover and a lot of new money is going to want to go in and the price is going to explode. But as the price of gold is exploding, it's very possible that the price of cryptocurrencies is going to be imploding. In fact, I was watching on the on CNBC as they you know pump Bitcoin every single day. And one of their most recent reasons to buy Bitcoin, and I even read an article, was they talked about... Bitcoin gaining in market share. As I'm recording this, Bitcoin is 49.3% of the crypto market cap. This is the highest it's been all year. Now, remember, I forecast when it was just about 40% of the market, uh, I said it would go to between 50 and 60 on this move. And that's what it looks like is going to happen. We're almost at 50%. But I said it would happen on the way down. But you're getting all these people like Brian Kelly on CNBC saying that this is a good sign, that it shows that, you know, Bitcoin is going up relative to other cryptocurrencies. And so this is a positive sign for Bitcoin. I mean, come on, Bitcoin is falling. 
It's just falling more slowly than the more speculative cryptocurrencies, even though they're all speculative, right? If you look at the, the perception out there, Bitcoin is like the blue chip. It's the first one. It's the one that's been around the longest. It's got the biggest network. So if all the cryptocurrencies went to zero, except one, people think that the one that would survive would be Bitcoin. So to the extent that you're investing in cryptocurrencies uh, and you want to relate your crypto portfolio to like a stock portfolio, Bitcoin is a blue chip, right? A lot of these other are high flyers. They're NASDAQ stocks. They're, you know, they're, they're penny stocks, right? There's, they're more speculative. And the fact that the more speculative names are falling faster than a more conservative name, that is not a good sign for the whole crypto sector. See, it shows me that the speculative fervor is gone, that we're not attracting new buyers into the crypto space. That's why cryptocurrencies are falling. But people who own cryptocurrencies are trying to adopt a safer strategy by maybe selling some of these altcoins and moving the proceeds into Bitcoin to kind of hide out, right? They're hunkering down, they're hodling their Bitcoin, but they don't want to hodl anything else. And so the air is coming out of this bubble. It's just coming out of the bubble faster for the altcoins than it's coming out for Bitcoin. But for you to try to argue that all cryptocurrency is going down, but Bitcoin going down more slowly than all the others is a bullish sign that it's something that you should be excited about, that it's a reason to be hopeful that we have a new bull market? Not at all. If anything, it shows you that the bear market has a long way to go. Personally, I think these um, altcoins are like a leading indicator for, for Bitcoin. And you have to remember too, a lot of the demand for Bitcoin is to buy the altcoins because a, a lot of times you need Bitcoin to buy these other cryptocurrencies. You can't buy them in cash. You buy them with your Bitcoin. And so if the interest in all these altcoins is going away, if people don't want the altcoins, then they don't need the Bitcoins to buy the altcoins. So you're taking more demand away from Bitcoin. So any way you slice this, this is a bad thing. What would probably be a good sign would be to see a big rally in the altcoins to see Bitcoin, you know, its dominance go down in a rising market, right? That that would be a good sign. Like that's what happened. People are pointing to what happened going into the peak of, of, of when Bitcoin got to 20,000, right? Bitcoin was gaining in, in market share. It was. That was because of all the speculation over the Bitcoin futures contract. So people were really pouring money into Bitcoin, but they were also buying all the other coins, right? A rising tide was lifting all boats, right? So money was coming into the sector, as it turns out, at the peak of a bubble. But all this money was coming in and Bitcoin was going up faster than the other coins. But now money is coming out. And so Bitcoin is going down more slowly than the other coins because of the relative risk perception. And again, it's perception because fundamentally, none of these coins have any value. But branding, uh, perception, that's all you've got in the cryptocurrency, right? It's all a confidence game. And people have more confidence in Bitcoin than they do in a lot of these altcoins. And so as the confidence goes, it's going in those coins faster than it's going in Bitcoin. But remember, we're very close now to that support level of 5,800. I mean, that was where we bottomed out last time. Everybody keeps talking about the 6,000 support. You go look at a one-year chart of Bitcoin. In fact, you can look at a 
chart over the last nine years. And we break below, decisively below this 5,800 level. It's a long way down. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's nothing but air beneath that chart. I said that, you know, there will be some support, you know, 3,000 down to, you know, 2,000. I mean, there will be some area where you could get support. But it's a long way between where we are now and where the market would have to fall before you get a bounce. You know, and we haven't even had that big a sell-off. Yeah, we've had 10% in one day. But for cryptocurrencies, that's no big deal. You know, we, we need to see a day where, you know, Bitcoin is down 50%. Maybe then we'll wash out uh, a lot of people and then we'll have a big bounce. But again, I don't think we're bouncing back up to 20,000. I mean, we probably won't even bounce back up to 6,000. I think if we decisively close below 5,800, uh, we're going to have a lot of resistance, probably anything in the 5,000s after that, that initial decline. So we'll see. This could be a very interesting weekend in Bitcoin because if you follow the crypto market, sometimes the biggest moves in cryptocurrencies happen over the weekend because I guess over the weekend you got nothing else to trade. I mean, all the other markets are closed, so all the action is in cryptocurrency. But again, since cryptocurrencies are speculative assets and maybe speculators are going to act the same way, if we get a big drop in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies over this weekend, maybe we'll have a similar drop in the stock market, a lot of these other speculative assets could fall as well. And maybe we'll have a reversal in the currencies. Maybe people will realize, like I said, that the dollar is not the safe haven that everybody thinks it is, that it has no more real fundamental value than any of these cryptocurrencies. The only thing it has going for it is perception. It's that people have confidence, just like uh, Wiley Coyote, right? He had confidence until he looked down and then he realized that he was standing on air and that's when he fell. Thank you.